Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. It's all getting a bit hairy this week as we take on a prickly debate that's proving particularly divisive. We haven't always been a clean-shaven army. It's always linked to fashion. It's something that we need to look at. We do need to move on. I want, I want, quit wasting our time on something that doesn't have anything to do with kicking the enemy's ass. The Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, has branded the Army's beard ban ridiculous and outdated. We'll explain why this is a matter of more than just image and get the thoughts of a former Chief of Defence people as the Chief of the General Staff reviews the regulations. We'll also talk about the next CGS. General Sir Rowley Walker will be promoted to the Army's top job in the summer. Mike will analyse the scale of that job. And into the Valley of Death with the Welsh cavalry. Sean's been hunkered down with them on exercise diamond back in the Mojave Desert. Worst case scenario, if we need to be here for 48 hours, then at least we can and remain in this position. How confident are you that you can avoid detection? <sighs> Good question. Zidrep with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. Before we get into this debate, in the interests of journalistic integrity, I need a declaration of interest from you, Mike. Um, ever grown a beard? Uh, no, no, I never have. Uh, when I was involved in the theatre, I had moustaches occasionally. Uh, I played Sergeant Musgrave once in Sergeant Musgrave's mm. Dance, and I had a, a real humdinger of a Victorian sergeant's moustache, which I liked immensely, but it didn't really suit me. And I've, I've, uh, I, of course, as you get older, you realise that your beard will be completely white. So, not mm. wanting really to look like Captain Birdseye, <laughs> I've decided. I decided some years ago that I was a clean-shaven sort of chap, and I've, I'll stick with that. Well, the Army's ban on beards for most soldiers dates back to 1856. We'll dig into the history in a bit, but the reason we're talking about a possible end to this long tradition starts with a tweet from the Army's most senior enlisted officer, the Army Sergeant Major W01 Paul Carney. He posted on X, Great Army Executive Board yesterday where CGS agreed to look at beards in British Army to understand the benefits to recruiting, retaining, motivating and our reputation to aid a quick decision next year. He closed by saying, we are listening to our soldiers. He also posted very fetching pictures of himself and the Chief of General Staff with pretty full-on beards. Um, I think they were AI-generated. Not certain, though. If you'd like to clear that up, you can get in touch. Um, let's bring in Lieutenant General James Swift, now retired, but formerly Chief of Defence People. Uh, good to have you back on SITREP. Uh, before we get mired in the arguments on each side, why does it matter? I think it matters because it, it, uh, it's about how we treat our people um, and whether we think it's necessarily to over control our people or whether we're prepared to give them as much choice as to how they live their lives inside and outside work and treat them as human beings. And of course, this debate is not is not only about the it is only about the army. Sorry, the RAF allowed beards a couple of years ago and the Navy has been loving them for centuries. In your experience as an army man who then ran personnel across all three services, why the difference? So the difference is, is has traditionally been driven for operational reasons. So if I'm, uh, the Navy will correct me if I've got this wrong, but in the days before um, desalination plants and things, you know, uh, water was scarce on ships and that, that drove the sort of hygiene regimes, including uh, shaving. And Mike would know better than me the history probably uh, behind the army. But in more recent years and in the time of my service, it's been about 
operational effectiveness so being able to wear your respirator in when you need to and get a decent seal so that you can uh, continue to fight and that still stands but on all the operations i've been on i've only carried my respirator properly once and didn't have to wear it and uh, so you it's a risk-based judgment Mike, one interesting aspect of this is the Defence Secretary Grant Shapps has uh, very publicly played his hand, telling the Times the armed forces have got very pernickety about facial hair while struggling with recruitment. Uh, but it's not his decision to make, though. No, absolutely it isn't. It's a, it's a decision which the three services can make. And they make it for, as General James said, for their own reasons. So, you know, in the Navy... It is required to have, if you're going to have a beard, you have to have a full beard. You can't have a moustache. Uh, in the Air Force, you can have a moustache. In the Army, you can have a moustache, but not a beard. And they, they, you know, all the services have their own reasons for, for, for saying that. But it's absolutely nothing to do with the Defence Secretary. It's just the way the services choose to interpret that rule. And, of course, it, you know, in terms of the Army in particular, with its bigger numbers, I mean, it's a more personnel-based service, it's partly, it partly does go with the fashions of the day. I mean, I know the Army does have an issue with tattoos. At one time, they used to say, well, you know, we, we, we will take people with tattoos if they're not too obvious. Well, these days, some tattoos are very, very obvious. And, of course, they have a big issue these days with recruiting women with tattoos. At one time, that would be unheard of, that it mm. would be an, even an issue. But now it's quite a big issue. So the army has to, in a sense, move with the times. But it's always trying to get this balance, as General James uh, you know, will know, between as well, operational effectiveness, image and the freedom to allow uh, individual service personnel to lead their own sort of, to, to express their own personality. But you want to do it within the tradition of the service in a, and in a way that looks good on parades, quite honestly. Mm. Yeah, well, well, let's pause to hear some of the factors at play in this debate. We spoke to the Army Sergeant Major this time last year, and it was pretty clear then that informal conversations were being had inside Land HQ about the impact of the beard ban on recruiting the range of people needed by the Army. I wouldn't have expected anything less than a beard question, but um, and it's it's something that we need to look at. We do need to move on, and I regularly chat to my international allies as well and the changes that they make. So Canada, for example, have taken away all standards uh, with regards to facial hair, piercings, makeup, off the table now, and. People worry about that, but in Canada's case, that's only really impacted 3% of their military population. So I think we need to continue to have the discussions. We need to continue to modernise and stay in line with society. But we also need to remember we're a uniformed organisation. What we ask of our people is so much more than what many civilians will ever be asked of. While Canada has fully embraced facial hair, next door, the US Army, Marine Corps and Air Force all still have bans in place. Chief Master Sergeant Ramon Colon Lopez gave a pretty blunt assessment when the US Air Force decided earlier this year that its rules would stay. We call this a uniform. And what does uni mean? One. And that is part of the expectation of people to put their personality aside for the betterment of the team. And when I say personality, it's their wants. We all sacrifice to do something greater. And the more we start requesting, well, I want, I want, we start losing sight of that discipline and that commonality that we have as warfighters that we have one standard 
And that's starting to second for all of us because eventually it transcends into our discipline. So if you want to look cute with your skinny jeans and your beard, by all means, do it someplace else. But quit wasting our time on something that doesn't have anything to do with kicking the enemy's ass. Ah, strong words there. J James Swift, uh, that view may come from the U.S. Air Force, but it is shared by some in the British Army, isn't it? Uh, well, possibly, but I must admit I completely disagree with his premise. I get the point he says about uniform, but look at the British Army. Put two soldiers standing next to each other. They're absolutely not dressed the same because of our rich regimental traditions and any number of other reasons that also bring uh, moral cohesion and help our warfighting capability. So I don't think we should get wound up on that. I absolutely agree with the Army Sergeant Major about wanting to attract the most diverse workforce and particularly then not narrow their thinking into a uni or single approach because then you lose that diversity of thought and you get groupthink and that leads us to masses of problems so I disagree with him on that as well mm. and I think the the sacrifice bit is more of a balance than he suggests yes we join to serve uh, the uh, army's officers motto is serve to lead absolutely and when it really matters when we're on operations, then the team and the task have got to come first. But for most of the rest of our time, why can't we put the individual higher up that pecking order? And why can't we give people a bit more choice? Uh, he picks up on discipline. I think it's really important that our allies and our opposition view us as a disciplined force. And mm. when I think of pictures of people on recent operations, it's had nothing to do with their facial hair, whether they look disciplined or not. Of course, it's important that it doesn't impede operational effectiveness, the respirator point, that it doesn't impede the opinion of people. And I spoke to a couple of Welsh Guards uh, soldiers yesterday on this. One of them had a fantastic pair of moustache, but survey of two. Their view mm -hmm. was that you shouldn't be allowed to wear a beard when doing public duties. And therefore, for the two years that your regiment's doing public duties, you should be clean shaven. But for the years when you're not doing public duties and you're in the rest of the army, why can't you have a little bit more choice? And so you know, that combination of combat effectiveness, appearance, and giving the right impression of a really disciplined force, whilst also balancing that with choice. And of course, in there, it's got to be tidy. And mm -hmm. I know some young people who can grow a beard that looks, you know, if well kept, looks tidy and very smart. I know other young people who, frankly, can't grow a decent beard and therefore mm. probably shouldn't. Quite, quite close to you, I believe, those people. I was trying not to mention my sons, but yes. <laughs> now, um, it's no longer your job to speak on behalf of the army, but I'm interested in your personal thoughts on some of the online comments about this story. Um, one version of a point that several people have made goes like this. If people wouldn't join the army because they couldn't have a beard, then I would suggest maybe they are the type of people the army can do without. I, I think we might be missing a point here. Sometimes people rail against being told what to do. So there was a period about 18 months ago where about 20% of job offers across not just the military, but across the whole sector in the UK, about 20% of them were being turned down. And the reason they were being turned down was because it said in the contract, they had to be in the office at least three days a week. Almost all of those individuals would have chosen to be in the office because they were, were by and large, young, dynamic people who wanted to interact with people in the workplace um, you know, in person. But it was the fact that they were being told 
that they railed against. If, if we look at the Air Force, you know, they relaxed rules on this and allowed wearing of bibs in August 19. I mean, when I see Air Force personnel nowadays, I don't see them all sporting bibs. It would be really interesting to know. And um, Paul Carney mentioned you know, 3% of the Canadian Air Force. If the numbers are that small, what are we worrying about? Let's yeah. deal with this, put it to one side and worry about closing the gap in our recruiting and retaining because that matters much more to our operational effectiveness. Yeah, and on that point of operational effectiveness, Mike, a lot of people are bringing up potential problems of having facial hair if you need to use the gas mask, a respirator, a proper seal on the face. It is essential. Some people have come back saying it's fine. You're never going to be in the position of using one of those without significantly more warning time than it takes for a full shave. Are they right? I don't know if they're right or not. I don't I don't think they are really. Um, but, I, I, you know, I don't think there's any particularly practical reasons that or operationally practical reasons you can put a, against beards. Um, there's pros and cons of it from an operation point of view. I don't think those are very convincing. They t- I think they tend to be used as justifications for one side or another of the argument. I mean, you know, in and out of Afghanistan, I saw lots of beards on army personnel because when they were interacting with locals, it's, it very often was useful for the officer mm-hmm. in, a gr- in a group to grow a bit of a beard to be taken a bit more seriously by the elder of the village that he was going to talk to and that was one of those symbols that seemed to matter in Afghanistan and, and I, I do agree with the point that you know people can be flexible enough to say yeah you can express yourself in these sort of ways and that's absolutely fine but if you're on public duty then it's reasonable to say well okay no no beards maybe moustaches but no beards I mean that's not an unreasonable uh, requirement for public duty because the appearances really do matter and we know how important public duty is to the general image of the army within our own public and to you know all the tourists in the outside world who see the see our army and they just see how extremely good they are on public duty it really is a sort of piece of soft power diplomacy that our forces are as good as they are when they do the ceremonial stuff and they do it incredibly well it's not the first time the army's had these conversations at the top. They've been going on for centuries. You can see the results in pictures at the National Army Museum, where Julian Farrance is a curator. If you go back far enough in history, you'll see quite a lot of hirsute soldiers. Our collections begin in the 17th century with the English Civil War. And of course, although you have some fairly clean-shaven puritanical types fighting with the armies and Cromwell, you've got a lot of hairy cavaliers fighting with King Charles. With things like facial hair, it's, it's always linked to fashion. Um, and the fashion of the day was for uh, curling moustaches and imperial beards and that sort of thing. So no, we haven't always been a clean-shaven army. And when and why were soldiers stopped from having beards? So as we get into the 18th century and the Mulberian Wars, the fashion is for clean shaven and eventually that becomes regulation. Um, And so by the time you get into the 19th century, clean shaven for the Napoleonic Wars is pretty much de rigueur in British forces. But then if you go forward a bit further, by the time you get to the Victorian period, the fashion again is going towards the more hairy, taking our cue from Prince Albert probably. Um, So moustaches have come very much into vogue. And again, regulation will allow soldiers to grow moustaches by the time you get into the 1850s. And is there any evidence of any practical reasons for the ban rather than just image? Well, what it was claimed at the time is that um, the beards will promote vermin. So you might get a bit itchy if you've got beards and senior officers would would use that as as the reason to say, oh, we don't want beards because they will promote all kinds of nastiness. But actually, again, I think that's basically tradition and, and fashion is essentially dictating. 
if you look at the, the time of the Crimean War, they haven't got enough firewood to actually cook their food particularly well. So they certainly haven't got enough to start heating water for shaving. So of necessity, beards will come back in during the time of the Crimean War, but only on active service. So there's a series of photographs called Crimean Heroes, and they've got fantastic beards. I mean, there are some guardsmen there with, with um, beards going down as far as their bearskins go up. And what about uh, beards and gas masks? Did they coexist or how did they coexist? Gas comes into effect during the First World War, late 1915. British Army, we don't have beards at that time. I mean, the odd pioneer, possibly. First gas masks are just basically a bag that goes over your head. So that's bearded or not, that's no particular issue. By the time you get to SBRs or small box respirators, you do need a closer seal. So there is a problem with that if you do have too much hair on your chin. And of course, um, the Navy has allowed beards throughout. Why the difference in approach? Fashion. And it always comes down to that. So yes, the, the Navy have allowed the full set because it's part of their tradition. It's part of their heritage. And that all goes back to fashion. So that's really why they allow it and the Army doesn't. As I say, we, there have been occasions in British military history when we have been bearded previously in the uh, 17th century. And again, as I said, in the middle of the 19th century of necessity, the chaps who we had photographed as Crimean heroes have obviously come back from the war in the Crimea, still got their beards. Um, famously, Queen Victoria saw the photographs of the, the guardsmen with their great beards and went, oh, they look very manly. Could, I'd like to meet them. So she asked to meet them. and They were um, told to come and present themselves at Buckingham Palace. But of course, if you're going to go and meet the Queen, what's the first thing you do? So they got the razors out and shaved their enormous beards off before Her Majesty could admire them in the flesh, so to speak. Julian, um, I don't have the, the pleasure of being able to see you face to face for this interview, but are you a beard man? Do you have a beard, no. facial hair? <laughs> I don't currently have a beard. Um, I used to work for the, uh, the learning team here at the National Army Museum and we used to do quite a lot of live interpretation. So you had to sort of match your beard growth to what period you were portraying. But uh, I haven't had to do that for a very long time. So no, I don't <laughs> currently carry a beard. Julian Farrance, great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, Katie. Uh, James, just before we move on, um, how much demand do you think there is from soldiers to have beards? I think it's more of an issue because uh, we're letting it be an issue. And, mm. and by, by making a decision and treating it, um, then it'll cease to be an issue except for a, a handful of people. And it comes up because it's a constraint. I, um, I go back to my example of the, the Air Force. You, it hasn't suddenly led to every aviator sporting a beard. Mm. Well, the decision currently rests in the hands of the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Patrick Sanders, and he's stepping down next summer. And it's now been announced that he will be replaced by General Sir Rowley Walker in June. Uh, Mike, run us through the biography. What kind of man have they chosen? Somebody who's uh, got a very distinguished background in the in the military. I mean, he was he was a he's a guardsman. He was in the Irish Guards as a junior officer, and then led the Grenadier Guards, First Battalion of the Grenadier Guards. He was in two two SAS, and then became Director Special Forces. And so he's got a very distinguished operational career. Also won the DSO in Afghanistan. He was he was blown up in a Ridgeback vehicle. But you you know you don't get the DSO just for being blown up. You get DSOs for leadership at times of stress and with some uh, gallantry and purpose. And so that counts very much in his favour. The, the other aspect of his biography, which is really important, is that he's presently Deputy Chief of the Defence Staff, DCDS, 
with responsibility for strategy and operations. He has a, a reputation for being transformative. He's a man who changes things. Mm. And he's certainly got the background within the MOD in doing this really important DCDS job um, on strategy and operations, which actually points him towards what the army will be having to think about for the next 10 years. So a very uh, comprehensive CV. Uh, James Swift, you, you have worked with him. What is he like to work with? An absolute pleasure. Um, when I was the Assistant Chief of the General Staff, he was uh, Head Strategy. And I would add to Mike's pen picture, he is super bright. Uh, and he has the sort of intelligence that can not only see through the issue, but can then communicate it and the solution in an understandable way. And some really bright people just can't do that. But he does do that. And he also gets people. So mm. he's a brilliant choice. And, uh, and the army mm. will be well served. And Mike, General Walker will pick up a huge in-tray and a lot of very pressing matters, issues, deadlines and, frankly, problems. <clears throat> yes. I mean, the Army's got the biggest task to perform amongst the three services in terms of transformation. You know, the Navy knows what it's what it's doing. It's got most of what it wanted back in 2010 and even more than it wanted then. The Air Force knows what it's got to do. The Army is still, in a sense, conceptually trying to work out its role because the nation hasn't decided, you know, what it wants the Army to do. So it's got to transform itself against a, a rather uncertain yardstick and, and one view that, that I think is coming through again and again from some of the chiefs and some of the people around the chiefs is that we, we, we are leaning towards a bit of a maritime strategy at the moment and one view is that look we are the reserve for Europe you know we, we act as a strategic reserve for European security um, because the big armies are the, will be the Polish army, the German army at some point, and maybe the Finnish army will be one of the big armies, but we'll never be one of the big armies in Europe. The days of the British army, the Rhine are over. They're gone forever. So if we are the strategic reserve, then our army's got to be very good at something. And the thing it's got to be very, very good at is transformational um, operations. We, we should be the most transformed army um, in Europe because we won't be the biggest. We won't even be the most consequential in, in terms of boots on the ground. But we've got to be consequential in terms of our ability to pack a transformative punch. Now, that's, you know, that you, you can you can play with these words, but translating what I've just said into the specifics of what you're going to get the army to do, what the vehicles really will do, how many of them will you will have what size the army will be and how are you going to train them and recruit them you know as general james knows i mean all of that is still really being worked out and the cgs i mean patrick sanders has, has i don't say struggled with it he's taken on this challenge and uh, roly walker will take it forward i think there's a lot of continuity between patrick sanders and roly walker which is good very good but my goodness that is that is something that you need you need the best officers to be doing that and i think roly walker will certainly fit the bill but but it's it's really one big strategic challenge. And James, you worked closely with a number of service chiefs. What takes up their time? What does the job actually involve? Gosh, well, it's very different to any job they've done previously. And I've noticed a number of uh, senior officers as they transition into that role, change in both their focus and also sort of how they behave, I suppose, because suddenly the weight of the institution is on their shoulders. And whilst until then they may have been very um, forward-thinking, innovative officers, often that weight makes them slightly backward-looking. And they worry very much about what their predecessors think, and they consult them wisely. But 
um, sometimes that puts the brakes on some of their innovation. Um, and, uh, so, and that's probably their number one role, um, giving clear, cogent um, uh, operational advice um, and, uh, and then delivering the operational output obviously is right up there too. And in order to do that, they need the right tools. So they need the right equipment and the right doctrine and the right people. And the Army's got a pretty well-developed equipment plan that sort of is in progress, but it's going to be critical that they've got the right people to crew that in order to achieve um, the outputs that the nation's going to require of them. Lieutenant General James Swift, it's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time. News, discussions and analysis. This is ZRAP. Right, finally this week, we're on exercise with clean-shaven British soldiers in California. This is the Super Bowl of uh, large-scale combat operations. The hardest day that you're ever going to have in the Army is out here in the Mojave Desert. It's named the Valley of Death for many reasons. So it takes you beyond the limit. Hopefully our staff can outmatch the like, brute force. Well, SITREP's Sean Grezchek is just back from five days with the Welsh Cavalry, first the Queen's Dragoon Guards, while they were on exercise Diamondback in the Valley of Death. Uh, Sean, at the Super Bowl of Combat Operations. The Americans certainly like to big this one up. Just to explain to us what exercise Diamondback is and the Welsh Cavalry's job there. Well, Kate, it's kind of like the military version of the film The Truman Show with Jim Carrey. That's how the commanding general of the National Training Centre described it to me. Yes, because everything the soldiers do is being watched and then the conditions are adapted depending on how they're responding to them. So it's essentially a massive training exercise. It involves thousands of soldiers where troops are put into various different scenarios and they have to face a very well-equipped enemy known as Black Horse, the 11th Armoured Cavalry Regiment. They've got all kinds of things at their disposal. They've got Abrams' main battle tanks, Blackhawks, all kinds of drones. And one thing we unexpectedly stumbled across in the desert, which was a, a giant inflatable version of a surface-to-air an SA-22 missile system. Okay. Um, oh. The Americans spend millions of dollars on these exercises, and they do them over and over again throughout the year, uh, with various regiments getting their turn to be tested in the desert. Now, the soldiers are tracked and if they're doing well then the masters behind the controls of this digital battlefield behind the scenes change the game on them to bring them to what they describe as the edge of failure and the whole point is to make them better soldiers by throwing everything at them and exercise diamond back is what we call it the the americans refer to each of these as rotations so not as exciting uh, by uh, by name but the diamond back is is a type of snake uh, snakes just one of the things that can get you out there as well as the tarantulas the coyotes the scorpions of the Mojave Desert and the soldiers are all wearing these systems on them that allow their every move to be monitored and so at the very end they get a detailed very frank report on how they've done the Welsh cavalry were there working alongside the American soldiers who'd been sent there 410 cav so they had to integrate and and learn how to work together uh, but gather vital intelligence for them to try and defeat Black Horse. So a lot for them to do. Just give us a sense of the key events and how they went. 
Well, once the scenario goes live or, you know, they're in what's called the box, so they're inside this vast training area, then it's all systems go. And one of the trickiest bits of the terrain to get across is what's called the Valley of Death. Now, some of the names are less ominous, like the John Wayne foothills or the Clint Eastwood <laughs> Pass, but the, the Valley of Death, it's vast, it's long, it's very exposed. So it's usually where lots of soldiers run into difficulties. And we caught up with Lieutenant Freya Logan from the Welsh Cavalry at the beginning of her overnight reconnaissance mission. She'd climbed up to a high point overlooking the Valley of Death and had to feed back intelligence on enemy movements. And when we joined her, she'd just spotted something. I've got some thermal imagery. Uh, through the thermal imagery, I've got a uh, heat signature. I'm just trying to identify what that is. We've sort of got sustainability, water, food, uh, enough for 48 hours because you know worst case scenario if we need to be here for 48 hours and at least we can and remain in this position how confident are you that you can avoid detection <sighs> a good question uh, i'd like to say i'm very confident um but again they're very experienced in what they're doing you know this is their 18th rotation in this exercise and I have to say, things ended up going very well for Lieutenant Logan. She did manage to remain undetected with her soldiers. She successfully reported on the enemy forces. But it was a tricky night for the rest of the Welsh cavalry and their American counterparts. Elsewhere, um, a lot of them were sort of taken out by an unexpected helicopter attack that tore up a lot of the brigade that night. And the scale of this, Sean, it's epic, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You've got thousands of soldiers, but it's more the, the scale of the training area. It's 1,200 square miles of brutal terrain. I mean, you could fit the Salisbury Plain training area into it eight times, and it's the size of the state of Rhode Island. And that's why the Welsh Cavalry were so keen to do this exercise, because there's nothing on this scale that's possible to train on in the UK. And the OC of B Squadron, who we were following, said it's the best exercise on the planet, in his opinion, and he'd been wanting to experience it for about 10 years he's been in the army for about 12 so he was very very keen to, to get the opportunity to be tested there and what sort of real world scenario is this meant to be preparing them for well, the whole point of this is so that soldiers can win the first fight of the next war and be well versed in dealing with the element of surprise. And the commanding general of Forto and Brigadier General Curtis Taylor was talking to me about how transparent today's battlefield is and simple things like soldiers using mobile phones can get them killed. To me, it's very similar to uh, the example of World War II, where uh, many soldiers lost their lives because they just didn't understand that lighting a cigarette in a foxhole could get them killed by German artillery. And so, in, in my mind, the cell phone is the new cigarette in the foxhole, uh, and we'll have to manage expectations for our soldiers and help them understand just how dangerous uh, a cell phone can be. And the battlefield is so much more complex that the, uh, the battlefield is now very much a thinking man's game because of the amount of capability uh, that your enemy has to see and detect you in virtually uh, any spectrum uh, that's available, uh, the constant vigilance that a soldier must have to ensure that they're not being detected, and if they are detected, that, that their activity is not understood for what it is, but is perceived to be something more benign. Uh, that's a very important lesson that we try to teach. Um, and so we need the very best of our nation to continue to be part of the military because this is very complex. And Sean, how did it all go for you? It was absolutely fascinating because, Kate, it's the only time as a reporter that you get to see 
all sides of uh, a conflict, uh, mm. you know, obviously in a training scenario. Uh, but we were with the Welsh Cavalry. Then we were with the Americans. We were talking to the controllers of the exercise. So we knew what was about to happen so we could get to um, get parachuted into part of the training area where we knew we would be able to see them be tested. So you see everything. But of course, in a real conflict, you'd never get to do that. So it's incredibly unique. But I have to say, compared to exercise rattlesnake that we did a few years ago where we had to do a 14 kilometer overnight reconnaissance mission in the swamps of Louisiana, I much prefer traveling around on the bumpy Humvees in the (laughs) desert. I bet you did. Thanks, Sean. Good to speak to you. And you can watch Sean's film Into the Valley of Death on the Forces News YouTube channel or our website, forces.net. Mike, uh, the idea of some war games in the California desert could appear quite distant from the reality of the actual war in Ukraine right now, but it's not that long ago that British troops were involved in two desert wars. That's right. And it goes back to the old uh, maxim, particularly for British forces, you know, train hard, fight easy. And the, the harder you train, the better the exercises, then the easier the fight will tend to be when it comes to it. And, you know, that's a maxim that the Russians have not adopted. I mean, the Russian forces in Ukraine, you know, did not train particularly well. They don't exercise very well. The corruption of the Russian army had actually made the training exercises ridiculous in some ways. And, of course, they, they found out the hard way in February Uh, 2022 when they invaded Ukraine and made a complete mess of it and so Mm -hmm. train hard fight easy is really important and the other maxim I think is always this idea that Eisenhower used to have he said plans are useless but planning is essential and so all forces they know that their plans will collapse in the first contact with the enemy but their ability to plan their ability to adapt which is what you get on exercises that Mm -hmm. is essential and that's what you're really you know putting into the forces the idea that you can plan around the realities of combat as and when they develop. Really interesting. Mike, thank you so much, Professor Michael Clark, and my thanks to all of our guests. Mike and I will be back with the final SITREP of the year next Thursday, so we'll be dusting off the SITREP crystal ball for its annual outing to explain what lies ahead in 2024. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. (laughs) 